Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting with the three regular elves. It's Andy Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski. My fact this week is that Franz Kafka once convinced his entire family that Einstein's theory of relativity was going to cure his tuberculosis. Right. How was that going to work? It's a good question. I can't exactly tell you, but I can tell you how it was claimed it was going to work. I'm not sure I understand it, but essentially the plan was that you would take a cruise. According to this spoof article that he sent to his family, you take a cruise heading east in the direction of the Earth's rotation. And this would enlarge your body. And that would close the cavities in your lungs that were causing these problems. Um, And by enlarging your body and gaining weight by taking this easterly cruise, then you'd be cured. And he actually said that there was a company in Prague that was fitting out hospital ships specifically (laughs) for this purpose. Unfortunately, I think the holes would get bigger as well. That that is one of the many flaws (laughs) in the claim. Is it in Superman where he flies around the world and slows down the rotation? No, he turns it backwards he yeah. spins the world backwards which reverses time yeah. which oh, right. stops uh, his from Lois Lane from dying in a, back in a car crash well. I don't think that would work either but actually. wouldn't it also turn back the thing he had just saved because he saves the world first and then he has to turn the earth backwards to save the girl but it would also undo his own saving of the world in the first one so he'd be in exactly the well is that what similar to the is, fact that science I've <laughs> wondered if when you sail back westward is that gonna I mean is your TB gonna return do you then have to stay in China does everyone with TB have to end up in China I think if you keep <laughs> traveling east you're all right okay you have yeah, to keep going forever right. and ever do we know their reaction the family's reaction when he revealed yeah, they were... a joke they were really devastated, yeah. Uh, uh, that's not usually how good jokes end, eh? That's, <laughs> that's how good practical <laughs> jokes always end. Was, someone being very upset. Joke fail. But Kafka yeah. was amazing, wasn't he? Uh, Kafka is the most hilarious character. Um, he wrote letters obsessively all the time, which is great. So we've got this, and I think as most people know, he hardly had anything published in his life. I think he published 450 pages of work in his yeah. life and on his deathbed. Metamorphosis was, wasn't it? Yeah, Metamorphosis was. Stories. A few stories. The trial wasn't. And then on his death, he said to his publisher, wrote him that famous letter saying make sure you burn everything I've written and obviously instead of doing that um, it was all published yeah so his um, publisher was called Max Brod yeah and Max Brod um, kept all of his papers and then was in a really weird sort of menage a trois relationship uh, with a woman called Esther Hoffer and her husband Otto and um, when he died, he gave all of his all of Kafka's papers to um, to Esther Hoffer, who then gave them to her daughter. And her daughter now um, lives in an apartment full of cats with all of Kafka's papers in the corner. And basically, they seem they think they're all going to just get demolished by cat pee. Wow! And we'll never be able to read them. So everyone wants to get these um, Kafka papers so that we can read these amazing stories. And she's like, "No, they're mine. Um, my cats are going to pee on them." And there's is that why? Because I think the British Library or the or maybe the Bodleian is keeps claiming that yeah. they actually have the right to them. And there's some ambiguity in what Kafka said. Yeah, everyone uh, what Broad said they should get them. Yeah. And everyone also keeps trying to get rid of the cats. And so they keep going in the council and saying, no, we're going to take these cats. And every time they take like 20 cats away, another 20 arrive. <laughs> <laughs> they just keep coming. It's like an ultimate cat lady. Maybe they just That's love Kafka. Kafka-esque. Never mind. Let's move okay. on. So the whole burning 
all of your work post your mm. death. Mm. Why? I think Why? because, so it's actually estimated that he burned 90% of what he wrote during his life, Kafka. So we only have 10% of what he wrote, but he was a real perfectionist and he hated himself. He was really self-loathing. So I think he thought that nothing that he ever wrote was good enough. Yeah. And um, I mean, I guess maybe some of it's quite revealing. Like he wrote this letter to his father. He went on holiday for two weeks intending to write and he ended up spending the entire two weeks writing a letter to his father, this incredibly <laughs> long letter about everything his father had done wrong. And it was all, his father sounds like a terrible person. So um, it was accusing him of saying, of doing stuff like his father would say no one's allowed to speak at the table the table is for eating but his father would incessantly speak at the table no one's allowed to swear but his father had the foulest mouth of anyone he knew wow. he was terrified of his father and he wrote him they spent two weeks writing this letter that he never sent him um, another letter that he wrote that I quite like is he wrote a 16 page letter asking for a promotion when he worked at the workers accident <laughs> and insurance company <laughs> the thing about his father and the dinner table um uh, Kafka liked to um, have the diet called Fletcherism. You know yeah. that one? So that's where you just keep chewing you and chew chewing. every and mouthful a hundred times. Yeah, that's until it goes. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, until until basically there's nothing left in your mouth and it all turns into mush. And you What's the point it. of doing that? By having larger things in your body, it makes you put on more weight. Whereas if you chew it all, it makes it go through yeah, your body. Yeah, because it'll easier. be more broken down, won't it, by your saliva? Yeah. So yeah. they used to, for instance, they used to have dinner parties like Fletcherism dinner parties where. <laughs> They would have a timer, so everyone would have a mouthful, and they would have like a one-minute timer, and everyone would chew, 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 and then they'd be like, "Ding, okay, next mouthful," and then you do that. Wow. Really? Come to yeah, party, really... 7 p.m. on the fourth. Carriages, 9 p.m. on the twelfth. <laughs> uh, Fletcher was really cool, actually. Um, he said he thought that by doing his particular style of um, diet, that you would only defecate once every two weeks. And he said that it would smell like warm biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, apparently, he carried around a sample of his own feces around to illustrate the wonder. Wow. So biscuits, like, anybody? That's <laughs> true. Hopefully, yeah. he didn't carry it in a biscuit tin. That would be <laughs> He also got really into Muller's... He was into fads because he was really yeah. self-conscious about his weight. Um, he was afraid of his own reflection because he thought he hated the fact that he was so ugly, which he actually wasn't. Um, but he got really into Muller's exercise fad, which was, I think, probably the first real big exercise fad this guy called Muller telling you the exercise you should do every day was that like naked exercise that was the naked exercising so he always appeared in a loincloth and said people should just wear this little and he would go skiing in St. Moritz in a loincloth and stuff and people were a bit <laughs> sceptical about how beneficial this was to anyone's health um, but he got very he was devoted to that that's wow. fantastic yeah I, I was looking into sort of just famous authors and their quirky ways mm -hmm. of writing. Yeah. You know, so Kafka, obviously, just going for massively long letters. It's really enjoyable to find out that everyone doesn't find writing as easy as you assume that they did, some mm -hmm. of the biggest authors. So um, uh, Victor Hugo, he, he was so bad at writing and concentrating and, and needing to be in the... You know, you always have that, oh, I need to get out of the room and do something more important. He used to lock away all of his clothes to avoid <laughs> temptation of going outside. Well Oh, wow. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He, he often had a chauffeur who he'd give the clothes to and say, on no account, give me these clothes until I've done my work. And, uh, and, then, and he, did, he did eventually start wearing a shawl. I think people would walk in and be like, oh. Okay. <laughs> was there was a like, Greek writer who shaved half of his head? And the idea was that he would be too embarrassed to go out in public, and so he would stay in and write. can't remember who that was. Yeah. Wow. It's a nice These idea. are all 
universally bad ideas. Yeah. That's the interesting thing for these great writers. Yeah, because if also, you can't resist a temptation, you end up wandering the streets stark naked with yeah. half a head of hair, and you're in an asylum. But the half a head of hair is okay, because if you were desperate enough, you could just make sure that you were facing one direction <laughs> yeah. wherever you went. As long as you kept that spot, no one would know. Um, on Just on writing practices, yeah. I didn't know this about T.S. Eliot, who, similarly to um, Kafka, left instru- he didn't want his life written by anyone. He left instructions. There should be no official biography of him. And I think Peter Ackroyd's just written one, but he basically wasn't allowed access to a- any of T.S. Eliot's private letters or any of his life, so it's quite difficult. Just made but, it up. Yeah, I think he just made it all up. So maybe this is made up. But no, T.S. Eliot used to put very pale green makeup on his face and nobody knows why he wore very pale green makeup people have speculated it was to look like a corpse although i don't know if why he'd want to do that maybe it's just a fashion thing t.s Eliot, who's he the green face like, guy maybe oh yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah he was yeah. just yeah. always <laughs> insanely jealous Maybe it was that. Oh, yeah, just constantly. What are his poems like? I haven't read it. Are they just like, <laughs> she's with him again? <laughs> yeah. Did you see the green cat in Bulgaria this week? Who's in the news. No. Yeah. yeah, there's a green cat in Bulgaria. It's like bright green, and everyone's like, whoa, how on earth could it be a bright green cat? Is it like some kind of science experiment gone wrong or something? But apparently it likes sleeping in a tub of green paint. <laughs> <laughs> Right. How long did it take them to work that out? Not, not so long. Yeah, okay. Victor Hugo, yeah. I think this is right, kept a detail, an extremely detailed diary of all the women he slept with. Did he? Yeah. But it was, I mean, it was extremely detailed. It was like a spreadsheet with lots of different columns and lots of different... That's, that's kind of weird. a woman's worst nightmare. <laughs> that's like the um, the uh, curator at the Natural History Museum. He does that, doesn't he? Have yeah. we spoken about <laughs> that? No, did we, speak, did we talk about this on the podcast? He used to collect... Um, after every sexual conquest, a single hair of pubic hair of theirs. Yeah, oh. after he after he died. Sorry, we should specify this is not the current curator of the Natural <laughs> no, History no, Museum. No, no, no. You just said the curator, Dad, no. and I just want to avoid any potential. No. Oh no, I meant legal... that as in the one that we've spoken about before. He right. was a curator. I can't remember okay. his name. He used to collect um uh just one one sprig. I seem to remember sprig of pubic hair <laughs> being the the word used. Uh, and he would file them uh in color and date, and he did a proper curator's job on it. So they were going through all his his files after. After he died, and they came across this kind of collection of Can you hair. visit that at the Natural History Museum? It's not on now. display at the moment, though. It's a real shame. It should be, though, I mean, yeah. It should. That's very distressing. Um, um, other writers and their, their weird writing habits. Um, there was a writer who was a huge American novelist at the uh, sort of ni- early 1900s, Thomas Clayton Wolfe, who always used to write on a refrigerator because he was so tall, which just seems <laughs> like he's rubbing in people's what, faces. With little magnet letters. But, yeah. It took him a long time to get a novel out there. Ages. Yeah. Imagine sending it to the publishers as well. Uh, there are yeah. 300 fridges outside. Um, yeah, kids rearranging it. <laughs> this novel what? just seems to say bum bum we. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, just going yeah. back to Kafka, if we can. Mm. Yes. Um, so there was a um, a biography of Kafka written a couple of years ago by a guy called James Hawes. And he caused controversy because he wanted to talk about the um, pornography that Kafka had. Uh, and apparently he was saying that Kafka was into hardcore porn, including images of hedgehog-style creatures performing fellatio. <laughs> hedgehog-style creatures? Yeah, so like creatures that look a bit like a hedgehog, but like porcupines, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll just say porcupines. <laughs> no, no, I, I think they're like half-human, half-hedgehog things. Um, so he was that, a furry? Isn't that what a furry is? Yeah. Kind of. I'm not sure he dressed up as them. Okay. But then the, um, the German... Um, 
scholars then said, well, this is obviously rubbish. Um, this um, author in Britain is just a prude, and these um, hedgehog kind of things are just not pornography at all. They're just high art. Oh, wow. yeah. And hmm. he said that um, comparing those illustrations to hardcore porn is like comparing a poem by Henrik Heine with an advertising slogan for McDonald's. Sure. So basically, this isn't hardcore. You should see our hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> Come <laughs> into the back room. Yeah, I'll show you my... something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since we're on the subject, um, I wrote, was reading a book about uh, the history of London and sort of London and Vice, basically, and it had titles for uh, 19th century pornography which were quite something so um the spreeish spouter or flash cove's slap up reciter i mean that is a good title that is very you good. know um the jolly companion and the story of a dildo <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's, it's, it could almost be a girl's name you'd see it on the shelf and think ah oh, the little the maiden a dildo well it might have been the story of a dildo as in the story of alan dildo you don't we don't know yeah that, that's exactly true. so i um i spoke about on a previous podcast uh, just on on this subject um about monster erotica um, yeah, you guys sure. remember? So it's it's an amazing. I, I spent the weekend looking more into it. I've downloaded a number. <laughs> it's, and, but the interesting thing was, and they're all on Kindle. You could get them. Um, there's this whole world of monster erotica, and you would figure that who who the hell's reading this? No one's reading. This. Kafka's reading it. Kafka's reading. That's who was reading. Um, it turns out some of the authors are making up to thirty thousand dollars a month. If this no. is an advert in a sidebar saying how I earn thirty thousand dollars a month working from home, that's it's a con. Okay. Clearly, the whole thirty thousand is coming out of Dan's bank account. <laughs> um, Kafka used to laugh uncontrollably at his own jokes, which Nothing is wrong weird. With that. <laughs> Indeed. Another thing which I think he would have found funny because he had a really morbid sense of humour. Hence the um, a spoof letter to his family, convincing them he wasn't going to die. Which I don't know if I mentioned this, but he did die of TB quite young, right. um, shortly after sending them that spoof mm. article. Um, was that while he was writing? The Hunger Artist, which was a story about starvation. He was writing that as he was dying of TB, and during the writing of that, about someone who can't eat, his throat closed up and he stopped being able to eat anything. So it's sort of like his body was trying to give him the visceral experience of what he was writing about. Well, I used my first job was interviewing um, women with uh, acid reflux um, <laughs> at, for a market research company, and after four <laughs> days of doing that, my boss and I, both doing the same interviews, we both got the symptoms of acid reflux on the same night. Coincidence? No. Uh, one more thing about letters. Yep. Mm. Um, Gordon Brown apparently liked to write letters to people in the X Factor. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> and he he wrote basically for a few years while he, I think it was while he was prime minister he would write to people and say oh I thought you were very good or I thought I remember you know, this yeah yeah he, did. he wrote to one guy Daniel Evans a 38 year old swimming pool cleaner. And said, on a personal note, can I say that the next time Simon says you are only supported by the over 60s, you can tell him I disagree. He was 57 when he wrote that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thanks, Gordon, really helping my case. Yeah. Was he really big, like a massive fan? Apparently. No, it, it sounds like some kind of sad political stunt that his PR, stupid PR advisors told him to do, along with smiling like a maniac in order to ingratiate <laughs> right. himself with people. Doesn't it? Yeah. Poor Gordon. I'd like to think it was real. Oh, I've got, I've got one more thing about the writing process. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so. So uh, there's a an inventor who James, it turns out, has met uh, oh, called yeah. Dr. Yoshiro Nakumatsu. Yeah, I've is, met him. Yep, so you've met him. He Okay, so he's responsible for 3,300 inventions, according to him, James. He claims to be the most prolific inventor of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he patented the floppy disk. Uh, he had many of his greatest ideas uh, when he was close to drowning. 
(laughs) (laughs) And when you say many, it means that obviously this is a guy who's shouldn't be in a pool <laughs> and so basically he uh he also he, invented scuba apparatus yeah, yeah. <laughs> armbands so he realized that uh in order to have good ideas or at least what works for him is that he needs to be at the bottom of a pool simulating the idea that he's about to drown and he had developed a one of his inventions an underwater notepad uh, so <laughs> he'd start jotting ideas down as he was on the brink of death and then swim back to the surface and come out and go floppy disk <laughs> okay time for fact number two and that is Andrew Hunter Murray my fact this week is that dead geckos still stick to walls <laughs> it's just pleasing isn't it just a nice fact um, and this was tested by a team of scientists who stuck a gecko. Well, they didn't stick a gecko on a wall. They just let it climb up one and then killed it. And then killed it. That's did they really? Yeah. That's how they oh, did yeah, it. Yeah, it was um, it was induced death rather than waiting for the gecko to die of natural causes, which would, <laughs> to be fair, have slowed the experiment down a great deal. Um, so it's it's really interesting. How come you don't see loads of dead geckos on the walls all the time, and they're not filling up all the walls? You do every lizard <laughs> wallpaper you see. That's actually oh, yeah. real lizard wallpapers that yeah, you get. Yeah. You know, yeah, very fashionable. Um, well, it lasts not forever. It lasts until right. a while after they die. At least half an hour after they die, they can still be there. Quick um, question. You know yeah. how we've been? Because Andre Geim, uh, who is a professor, he um. He came up with uh, the idea Nobel of graphene. Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, Nobel Prize winner for graphene. Uh, Going to change the world. He does these Friday night experiments. One of the things that he's invented in which he's trying to make better is a, a glove which acts like a gecko. It's called um, mm. gecko tape, I believe. You can climb up a wall. The only issue that they have with it is that, unlike a gecko, it kind of the, the little hairs, which is what they are using, so spider hairs and gecko hairs, that's the kind of technology that they're yeah. trying to harness, uh, it clogs up, and so you start start slipping and you start going down my question is get a big enough gecko why can't you create a glove where a live gecko is on the actual end of the glove and you climb a wall with four geckos with four geckos attached to your hands and your feet there's no reason. There's no reason at all. Has oh, anyone tried? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are ethical reasons, definitely. <laughs> oh, hang on. They're, they're making them well, hang climb on. walls and killing them while they're we there? We don't know. We're already in dubious that's, territory. That's morally. for scientific purposes, not Spider-Man purposes. This um, would help. This would be for military... All right, we should say why, how they can do it in the first place. So um, it's very, very clever. Every square millimetre of a gecko's foot contains 14,000 little hair-like structures. Um and as they climb up the wall, they basically push these into contact with the wall, and they use something called the van der Waals force, yeah. which is so cool. It basically disrupts the balance of electrons and protons in atoms. So uh, the hair, as it's pushed towards the wall, it pushes all the electrons of the first atom of the wall to one end, right? So it pushes them to the other end. So that atom is next to the one next to it, and it repels all the electrons to the other one, because mm-hmm. like forces repel. Mm-hmm. That means that you've got an atom uh, with all electrons at one end and an atom with all protons at one end, and they then are attracted, attracted. to each other and stick together. Yeah. That, in microcosm, is how the gecko climbs up walls. Wow. And they can support 20 times their own weight. I think they inspire a, uh, they've inspired a kind of superglue, the way it works. Um, <laughs> they've designed superglue based on that, yeah. Uh, there's another. There is a type of superglue that's based on that and the thing that mussels use. So mussels will attach to rocks using a kind of um, like uh, cement, 
and they've mixed that kind of cement technology with the Van der Waals technology of the geckos, and they've got a new adhesive wow. called um, it's called Gecko or something like that, which is like supposed to be a super duper amazing, yeah, but also works underwater, so it could be used for you know like um, elastoplasts that won't go fall off in the bath and stuff like that. That would be very handy. That would be yeah. really useful. Yeah. I can't believe they haven't got on that yet. But I don't think the elastoplast industry would allow it. No? They make their money from people constantly losing uh, them in the bathroom. You put a new one so on. So it's like a oh, conspiracy yeah. theory. Yeah, that... you're going up against big plaster there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a technology that we've not yet harnessed in the... You know when you uh, lick an uh, icicle and yeah. your tongue sticks to it? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a very good sticky little thing that we haven't really harnessed. Do you think it's like 20 times your own weight? Do you think you could hang uh, off? You have, to wear... have you seen Dumb and Dumber when they're trying I to... I have, yeah, okay. but I don't know if that they did a lot of scientific research There's about that. five people trying to pull Jeff Daniels' tongue off that Okay, bar. Dan, yeah. look, it's really cold Again. outside today. <laughs> yeah. That wall is very cold. Put your tongue in it. We'll kill you and we'll see if you still <laughs> stick that. Good work. On geckos, mm. there was. Did you guys? Do you guys remember that woman earlier on this year who claimed that she'd given birth to a gecko? Oh yes, yeah. in Indonesia. Um, and her and a midwife uh, both reported it. She thought she was going to give birth to a child, and when it came out, turned out that uh, it was a lizard coated in mucus and blood. Apparently, slithered out of the birth canal. And I don't know a why the midwife had to help with that. It seems because to it was quite stuck. easy. <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Those damned adhesive feet. Um, <laughs> but then they became the target of this witch hunt in Indonesia because she was accused of witchcraft. Literally a witch hunt, yeah. So why would you make that hoax? Why would you pretend you'd given birth to a lizard? It must be like the Kafka joke. She thought this is going to go down a treat and then yeah. <laughs> got revealed. Actually, oh, no. that, that kind of backfired. Yeah. Wow. Geckos lick their own eyes to keep them. They, they, don't, they can't blink. Yeah. So they just go around licking their own eyes. Oh, yeah. Do you Wait, isn't that? it that they don't have eyelids they've got a sort of clear film over their eyes but they don't have movable eyelids i believe is that right you have three eyelids done i've always thought you looked a bit weird (laughs) what what do you mean three eyelids on each eye do i so the one that goes down yeah one goes up and you have another little one there's a little kind of flap of pink in the corner of your eye and that used is what used to be your third eyelid and now it's only a little tiny flap that's very coincidental because geckos have three eyes do they? They have a third eye, which is a little light-sensing... Oh, a pineal one. Yeah, a pineal oh. eye. Um, how, I'm trying to think of how to describe it, really. What does pineal mean? Okay, so basically it is... Um, it's They are cells which will... Um, they will sense light. Uh-huh. Um, and they're outgrowths of the pineal gland, which is in the top of your head. And I think the idea is that they can then sense the change in light above them. So if any kind of predators come from above, then right. it, they'll be able to sense them. I think that's right. Yeah. And they've done tests on people where, and I don't think this is a pineal thing, but where completely blind people can tell whether a light is on or not. And do, people who do they are, hear someone click the switch? No. <laughs> There's um, a type of gecko called the Moorish gecko, and they change... They are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> They change colour um, if you put them on a surface, but unlike a chameleon, they change colour to be the same colour as a surface. Oh, they genuinely camouflage themselves. Yeah, exactly. And these geckos, say you put them on a yellow surface, they'll turn yellow. But if you blindfold them, they'll still turn yellow uh, because it's what? not their eyes that are getting wow. the sensors. It's um, some kind of light sensors in their skin that are doing it. Oh, That's really? amazing. So if you put the blindfold around their kind of stomachs, <laughs> then they won't be able to see it and they won't be able to change. That's not a blindfold, though, is it? It's a... Stomach fold. fold. <laughs> skin fold, yeah. yeah. Can they do patterns? 
I like. Can you put them on a picture of Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe and have like that appear <laughs> on a gecko? Very sexy you're, you're gecko. You're fulfilling yeah. a long-standing fantasy of Dan's here, which has a gecko, <laughs> gecko that looks porn. like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a monster. Erotica. Very much the Kafka of the Office. Yeah. <laughs> there was a gecko discovered in 1877. A British Lieutenant Colonel called R.H. Bedham uh, found it in India, and then it disappeared. And we just rediscovered it 135 years later. Oh. We stumbled back upon it. Same yeah. one. The Jaipur ground gecko. Very old, very bored. <laughs> Hasn't had any company for a long time. I miss the colonel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I tell you something about adhesion? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you will like. Okay, this is in 2008. Uh, a campaigner against a third runway at Heathrow attempted to glue himself to Gordon Brown at a Downing Street reception. <laughs> um, he's, he's called Danglass. That'd be terrible because you'd have to spend all Saturday night watching X Factor. <laughs> <laughs> So he was about to receive an award from the Prime Minister for his campaigning work, and then he stuck out his super-glued hand and touched the Prime Minister's sleeve. And um, Downing Street later said there was no stickiness of any significance. But the amazing thing is he'd smuggled this in in his pants, um, and he said afterwards, I just glued myself to him, and after 20 seconds, he tore my hand off. It really hurt. He tore his hand off? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, he's a tough man. Wow. Um, He had to give a a couple of tugs before it came away. Um, He was just (laughs) grinning about it. He didn't seem to take me seriously. (laughs) And then later on, he was allowed to stay at number 10 for 40 minutes after this happened. Wow. Um, And when he left the building, I'm quoting from the BBC article about it here, he tried to glue himself to the gates of Downing Street, but was prevented from doing so by a police officer. I didn't have much glue left by that point, he said. Okay, time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the active ingredient in the first ever homeopathy treatment was the blood of Thomas Beckett. Wow. So this, basically when Thomas Beckett died, he was basically a saint straight away as soon as he died, and everyone thought he was great. And they had his blood as a relic, um, but they only had a small amount of his blood, so the way that they could um, give it to lots of different people was to put a tiny drop in an enormous vat of water and then take bits of that water and give it to people, and it supposedly would be able to cure everything, which, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty much homeopathy. I agree. And it's uh, supposedly uh, just a few years after he died, um, from the time that they started doing it to a few years after, something like 703 miracles, supposedly. Yeah. Yes, but that was over the whole, I think that was over a 10-year period. And in just one year, a a couple of years later, 100,000 people visited the um, oh, so it's quite a low shrine. hit rate. So it's quite a low mm-hmm. hit rate. But I found another report saying it was you know you would drink the water, this homeopathic water that James has mentioned, and also there were cases were reported in which it was used for the magical detection of thieves and even for extinguishing fires, which <laughs> so it is would the work same for as that. use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, a miracle. miracle. <laughs> <laughs> the holy water put out this fire. I was thirsty before, and now I am not thirsty. <laughs> I was dirty before. <laughs> I was too hot before. <laughs> this magical substance. <laughs> Can I tell you about these, just really quickly, about those monks? Yeah, please. So one of them uh, was called William of Canterbury, of oh, the yeah. two monks who was writing down because these things. Because this was um, in Canterbury, that? That's where he died, right? right. And that's yeah. where he was buried, anyway. Because he was the archbishop, and that's he right. was killed. In and that's a, as part of Canterbury Tales as well. He is the journey. Oh, to visit the end. Right. The end point is Thomas A. Beckett, right? Well, Thomas um, Beckett, not A. Beckett, right? 
that is a Thomas myth. A. Beckett is a later edition. He never really had the ah. It was the same with a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> if he was on, called dildo. If he was on Twitter these days, he would be at Thomas Beckett. <laughs> yep. Um, I always feel sorry for Henry II in the Thomas Beckett incident because he said, didn't he, famously, well, people claim that he said, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest or uh, some other phrase like that. And that is the kind of thing you say when you're slightly pissed off with somebody and what you're not asking your friends to do is actually go and brutally murder them. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if he, they came back and were like, well, we did it. <laughs> He's like, you did what? Did what, yeah. Oh, my God, guys. <laughs> Simon Sharma reckons that... Um, it, that's not the right phrase. No, I it's know. Like a, that's a really neat phrase. And um, the biographer at the time, Edward Grimm, wrote in Latin, and he's, the, tra- the translation is, What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a lone-born cleric? Which is not ah. catchy. But actually, there's but- no way of... Sa- he's not saying there, go and kill him, is he? No. Not Although so- he is... No, it's he- even more... Ambiguous, but he is actively saying that his like the people who work for him have have a responsibility to go and seek vengeance, isn't That's he? In that true. quote, he's saying so, you're crap because you're letting us exactly walk all over me. Yeah. And I bet he, they got told off for doing it. It's one did. of those bosses, just never happy. One of them had to go and fight another crusade for 14 years to say sorry, <laughs> really? just yeah. to say sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. Well, Henry oh, was was I think whipped by 80 monks. Yeah, like he asked wow. for that, didn't he? As well, an as really. he requested it, not as in he was asking for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was like, he wanted to be penitent, so he asked to be whipped by these monks. Wow. Yeah. And they they just said, sure, that's not weird, we'll do it. It was more common at the time Yeah. to, uh, to, to be... request for monks to whip you. <laughs> what if you were... <laughs> yeah. You're making sure. it sound weird now. <laughs> um, one thing, I, I read a really peculiar thing about him, peculiar to me, but then clearly I find things like being whipped by 80 monks peculiar, so <laughs> maybe this is just, just a weird, very Dan. normal thing. <laughs> I read that on his death, the monks at Canterbury discovered that he wore a hair shirt and it was infested with lice. Mm. Yeah. These were under his vestments. Yeah. What's a hair shirt? That is a special shirt made of very coarse animal hair that you put on under your normal clothes, and it scourges and irritates yeah. you. And to it keep you suffering. You, to keep oh, so you... it was. It wasn't like a nice comfort thing. That's... No, oh, no. It was it was... Do you opposite. not wear those? <laughs> <laughs> what do you wear when you go to be whipped by eighty? <laughs> uh, Thomas Beckett was voted the second worst Briton of the last thousand years <laughs> oh, yeah. in a poll by BBC History magazine. Uh, who, came, got... who came first? Jack the Ripper. Wow, so that's quite harsh, yeah. considering that he wasn't really a considering murderer. Considering that everyone loved him as well. Yeah, at the time. he wasn't a murderer. No. There, must have, there are lots of other murderers. I'm surprised by Jack the Ripper. What? I'm surprised <laughs> by Jack the Ripper being voted the worst Briton. Yeah, the worst of all time? Of all time? Who would so, you go for? I don't know, but like... Jeremy Powell. Clarkson. <laughs> there are. <laughs> yeah. As a theory, he got his name Beckett from uh, Beck, which means beak, because he had quite a prominent nose, and that was maybe oh. a family trait, and that's where his family had got the surname from. It's just a theory, but... Really? It's nice, isn't it? Humanises him a bit. Thomas Beakey. When he was killed, he'd just got back from a six-year... I was going to say six-year holiday. He'd actually been exiled um, <laughs> in, in fearing his life, but still. That's yeah, how he was marketing it to yeah. his friends. <laughs> so he was away for six years because he was in fear of his life. Yeah, he was. The, he was right. <laughs> if, when he literally arrived back, he was killed. He came back under an amnesty because he had had a huge power struggle with the king. And then he got back under an agreement, and it was all going to be fine. And then he started excommunicating a load of people yeah. uh, who he'd specifically agreed he wouldn't, or the king had asked him not to. Okay. So that was the reason that he was Don't killed. Get back on your word. Um, on homeopathy, the guy who came up with it, uh, so and called it homeopathy, and came up with the original 
theory for it, who was Hahnemann. He thought that coffee was the thing that caused... Well, he went through a phase of thinking that coffee caused huge numbers of diseases. And he said the thing that was wrong with coffee, and the reason you know it's bad, is because coffee drinking makes everything pleasurable. And you know that in life, you're supposed to suffer as well as experience pleasure. And uh, you sort of get drunk on coffee and you enjoy everything too much. And that's not how it's supposed to be. So he says, even in the corporal functions, which in a natural state of health are accompanied by rude and almost painful sensations now operate with an astonishing facility and even with a species of pleasure. What is he referring to when he talks so about corporal? It sounds a lot like he's referring to the fact that you've suddenly got chronic diarrhea as soon as you have a coffee. And it sounds to me like he was just a constipated man. It sounds like yeah. he's got IBS. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Accompanied mm. by rude and painful sensations. Yeah, it's IBS. Yeah, good diagnosis. So George VI uh, received homeopathic treatment when he was trying to get his speech uh, right. So yeah. in the King's Speech, he had that, but it wasn't in the movie. Oh, did so what give, did he what, have? What did they give him? A ground-up word, diluted heavily. How do they? <laughs> Just a very short word. Yeah. Um, With lots of silence. <laughs> it was a medicine called Hypericum, and um, he was so appreciative of it that he named a racehorse after it. Oh. oh. So quite appreciative. Yeah. Didn't name a child after it. <laughs> <laughs> King Hypericum. <laughs> Probably best. Um, I saw it. I was I was looking on a forum about uh, just I guess these kind of miracle relics that are yeah. out there, and um, someone was asking an interesting question, which is they used to these these relics used to sort of perform or or you know give miracles in quite a sort of large volume yeah. in the early days, and the question was, as time passes, do relics perform less miracles just because like the gecko on the wall after half an hour it'll fall off yeah. has it got a period like of like battery running out exactly does it does it have the ability to do it for so long and um, everyone obviously said no on the forum but yeah I just like that as a question I like do they run out of steam do they run out of steam yeah, yeah. well because you just I love uh, this is my favourite thing about this part of history is with these kind of relics like it does sound like everyone was a superhero back then and we've yeah. lost the ability <laughs> yeah. to be superheroes I found a thing that James uh posted on QI the forums years ago um, I, okay. I found it this week <laughs> this is really funny so this is someone's superpower from back in the day um, the Times reported that Sonora Anna Morano the luminous woman of Pirano um, she suffered from asthma and as a result of the asthma emitted a blue glow from her breasts yeah. as she slept mm. Many doctors came to witness the phenomenon. Yeah, of course they did. did. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently, the, I'm not sure if there's ever an answer to why she had. Is that luminous... a superpower? Are we counting that as a superhero? Well, I mean, uh, they, you know, it would. Well, what, what purpose does that serve? Luminous breast woman. Well, if you're lost in the. So if she piled up with T. S. Eliot in his green face, <laughs> they go on, <laughs> you know, join a circus. If that's the Times, I guess that's not as old as I thought it was. No, it's quite... I remember that... I don't remember it happening. I wasn't posing as a doctor or anything. <laughs> um, no, but I remember reading about it. I think I read it in 14 times, actually. So it must have been only ten, in the last wow. 10 years. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure how real it was. Blue boobs. Just say. <laughs> Bloobs, for short. <laughs> <laughs> the bloober reel is after they finish filming a film, they just superimpose blue breasts onto everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. And my fact this week is that in 2013, a group of people attempted to crowdfund London's first ever UFO museum. 
They needed a million dollars, but unfortunately, after 30 days of pushing and trying to raise money, they only managed to get $370. I mean, a million in 30 days is very ambitious, but also that is what, that's $10 a day they managed to raise. It's almost like the kind of people who are putting this together have unrealistic ideas, not based in reality. (laughs) Yeah, they only got four pledges, really, from people, and someone, it felt like one of them was their mum. It was like, you know, like when you set up this thing and it's like, oh, please support my thing. Always, you, you parents come in first and yeah yeah so but i mean it, it looked really interesting uh it what was going to be in the ufo museum well it, i think it was going to be uk-based ufo stuff of which there is tons the biggest ever sighting of ufo like a big ufo incident was in the uk yeah but, but we i mean didn't get the actual saucer did we we don't have the ufos is it just a lot of mad people telling anecdotes, sort of stuck in rooms in the museum saying, I saw this really scary thing in the sky? Yeah. Is that the museum? Oh, what would be really great is that you go in and you don't see anything and you come in and you go, we saw nothing in there. And then they say, yeah, it was the men in black uh, at the end who wipe your memory. That's a really cheap way of making a... That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Um, so there is a... There's not a UFO museum that I can find in existence, but you know, what? I assume about... Are there UFO museums Roswell. all over the world? Yeah, there's one in Roswell. Roswell. Oh, the Roswell one. The most oh, famous. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What's in there? It's all, I guess, I'll put like a, a, a dummy of an alien, and that will become as famous as what could be the real alien, because enough people have seen it. You know. Yeah, that's what they do. So there's a cryptozoology museum in Maine, and it seems like they do the same thing. They just keep making models of made-up animals and then saying, isn't this amazing? This is what a Yeti would look like yeah. if it was a thing. Yes. Um, but oh, it does sound quite cool, the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland. They've got thousands of exhibits and like bits that are claiming to be bits of um, Barnum's Fiji mermaid. I kind of want to test you on whether you know what all these made-up words are. Okay, so I the, know the mermaid. Yeah, the yeah. mermaid. You can see a few of them at the British Museum. So these are the one at the Harneman, I think. Yeah, so these are the ones that it's a half monkey, half fish sewn yeah. together. Yeah, they, they, they are. They're right. Into. They're just inside on the right hand side of at the British Museum. Yeah, we, I think we've talked about them before. Yeah, I think we've we talked have. about them in relation to P.T. Barnum, oh. yeah. who had a load of them. One of his other tricks was he said, "I have a cherry coloured cat." In this bag. And it was just sleeping in some cherry paint. <laughs> right. um, no, it was just a black cat. And he said, some cherries are black. <laughs> That's, That's quite good. good one. Yeah. <laughs> I kissed a girl by the mermaid in the British Museum. Sorry? Mm. Just remember it. That's the worst Katy Perry song I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I kissed the girl by the mermaid. It sounds rude. You know that half monkey fish thing. <laughs> why, did you, why did you kiss her? Just next to the mermaid. <laughs> first date. Ooh, oh, I don't know. Um, so, Dan, do you know what this is? The so this this museum contains uh, like loads of hair samples of like the abominable snowman and orang <laughs> well, pendek and yaoi and it's not a single pube from each one. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also a letter from the actor Jimmy Stewart, who's one of my favourite actors. So this disappoints me if it's true. A letter from the actor Jimmy Stewart is on display as he is linked to the Pangbok Yeti hand mystery. The hand. Yeah. yeah. How was Jimmy that? Stewart linked there to was, that? There was a hand which supposedly belonged to a yeti. But yeah, uh, he was very obsessed with uh, yetis, and he managed oh. to get his hands on this on the hand. hand. <laughs> yeah. There was a review of this museum, and the guy said, "Quite frankly, we have more creepy things in my living room than they have in this museum." <laughs> and then he gave it five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Another museum in America, the Cockroach Hall of Fame Museum, nice. which is in Plano, Texas. 
this was a guy called Michael Bowden, um, who was an exterminator. Uh, and he has uh, dead cockroaches dressed as celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> like, have you got any examples? Uh, yes. Um, Ross Perroach. Oh, my God. <laughs> and David Letteroach are two. Has he, I think he's also got a Liberoche, hasn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in, it's in a little gold cape sitting at a tiny piano. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this guy's experience with the bazaar, I'm reading here, um, began in the 1980s when he held a contest to find the biggest cockroach in Dallas. <laughs> he later travelled the country judging cockroach fashion contests as a promotional stunt for an insecticide company. Well, you wouldn't do it as anything else, would you? You wouldn't do it as a serious investigation. I like the way that he's had that job and he's turned it into something awesome, like yeah. a museum. Yeah. I bet the insecticide company's annoyed. He yeah. sort of went a bit off-piste. <laughs> um, That's very funny. Daniel, I have a question for you. What yep. shape was the first ever flying saucer? Ooh. There's a clue in the word saucer. So it was round like a saucer. No! Ah, <laughs> ah, I tricked you. Was it a triangle? Um, no, the, the word saucer, why it was called flying saucer, is because it skipped across the sky like a saucer. Like if you were uh, skimming a saucer. Uh, that's why it got called that. It was actually um, crescent-shaped, like a boomerang. Oh, wow. really? Yeah. Is that why we can't keep them? Because they always go back to where they came from. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> why there aren't any UFOs in the museum. So do we know anything about the people who started this? Are they... They're, they're genuine believers in um, a- alien UFOs. Yeah, well, I'll give you I'll give you the basic blurb yeah. that they wrote. Our team includes people of sound mind who wanted to go to a UFO museum one day close to home in Paris, London, and Berlin and realized that they had to travel thousands of miles to visit such a place. When you have to start off something by saying, we're of sound mind, obviously, <laughs> yeah. it's like... I'll- and I think they think sound mind means they hear voices in their head. <laughs> <laughs> we already have access to material from a former UFO museum, but to open a new place today that would look modern, one would need much more material and to purchase new equipment. We've even found a few perfect locations to rent in London, but there are many other issues to solve first. We need your support to do more research, produce more information boards, mannequins, videos, pictures, computers... Etc. We truly believe this is a unique, exciting project that would attract a lot of people, and we need your help and support to make this become a reality. That was their basic blurb. Um, I see. No mention of what would be in there. Um, have you heard of Kick Ended? No. What's no. That? It's a side project to Kickstarter, which a man has set up, which is all the projects on Kickstarter which have made nothing. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, and they include um, the book So Long Constipation. <laughs> Um, it's a toilet book. Yeah. <laughs> it is a to- um, anyone who doesn't have two or more easily passable bowel movements a day will benefit from reading so long constipation. Have you seen those adverts for anti-constipation medicine which say uh, instant overnight relief? <laughs> no. It really doesn't sound like one <laughs> <No. does> it. <laughs> you might want to clean your sheets in the morning. Total immediate relief. <laughs> Wherever you are, <laughs> uncontrollable relief everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So so long constipation didn't get a single No, nothing. Pledge. Do you know what else didn't get a single pledge? Is someone called Henrietta needed to raise $6,000 to fund her comedy show called Please Love Me. Oh, my God. <laughs> nothing? Nobody. Oh my zero. God. <laughs> if you're out there, Henrietta, we love you. Another quite good idea that I might have donated to um, was the Little Eats. Did you read that? Which was a guy oh. who uh, has invented a food that is dog food and human food. Uh, which, if you have a dog, well, they always... Can, you can eat dog food, can't you? Yeah, and dogs can eat human food. I don't know how... Can you eat dog food without really hating it? 
Yeah. Well, no, probably not. It's no. probably not tasty, but I think you can eat it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I remember Didn't you work a thing a, about a supermarket? Yeah, there was a fact that I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's something like um, there is enough food in a supermarket um, for a single person to stay alive for 56 years, mm-hmm. and it's something like 67 years if you're willing to eat dog food. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd eat the dog food early on because you don't want your last year to be <laughs> the worst save, year. You'd save the Haribos. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, it would. That's a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but then if you get saved after like five years. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you eat the dog food first? Yeah. There'd be psychologically a lot of questions going at you. Yeah. Can I just take it back to museums for a yes, second? Mm. Uh, because I just did a search on the sort of weird museums of the world. And there's so many great ones. I don't know why they exist, but I'm so glad that they do. Uh, the Giant Shoe Museum. <laughs> just, it's, it's, I don't know if you count it as a museum. It's a single exhibit wall. <laughs> Is it like, a shoe? No, it says here, that to see the museum's collections, visitors must drop quarters into a coin box and then look through stereoscope viewing slots that reveal views of a variety of giant shoes, uh, including size 37. That's American wow. size, though. Yeah, but that was worn by the world's tallest man and the world's largest collection of giant shoes. The which world's is tallest what... ever man, William Wadlow. Yeah. Um, was he called? No, Robert Wadlow. Yeah. He was a shoe salesman. That was his wow, job. Was he? Oh. Yeah. Oh. Because he had to get really, really big shoes because yeah. they didn't make them that size. He went to the company and they said, yeah, sure, you can have them for free if you go around and sell them. And he did. But why would anyone else want to buy size 37 shoes? It was an example of what great worksmanship you have oh, because okay. you can make such a big one, then yeah. surely you can make little ones as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's very cool. So uh, Minnesota's Science Museum has the contents of a former museum inside it, which was called the Museum of Questionable Medical Devices. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> including the prostate gland warmer, the vibratory chair, and the recto rotor. <laughs> You've just picked three at random there. <laughs> France has four museums devoted to foie gras. Wow. I mean, they didn't want more than the first one, actually, but the people behind the museum just kept stuffing them down their throats. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've spoken about over the course of this podcast, you can get us on our Twitter handles. You can get us either on at QI Podcast or on our individual ones. I am on at Schreiberland. James. At Egg Shaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Jasinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or you can also head over to no such thing as a fish.com and you can find all of our previous episodes on there. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Let's get